Hello and welcome to the Mongol Media Show. I am Mongol Media Editor-in-Chief Efe Levant. To learn more about us and follow the articles discussed on the show, please visit our website www.mongolmedia.net. Mongol Media is supported entirely by reader donations. If you like our content and would like to see more of it, please check out our pledge options from our Patreon site. Listeners who like fiction can also buy our illustrated short story, Guide to Every City, written by myself and illustrated by Ala Al-Hasun. Guide to Every City is a guide for a fictional city inhabited by insects, the three different species of insect in every city, Hopsters, sloggers, and buzzies live segregated lives on their isolated neighborhoods. The book not only presents a commentary on social divisions within urban life, it also satirizes contemporary travel writing. The fictional author of the guide, Steve McCracker, is a thoroughly unrelatable hipster who genuinely believes that the rest of the world did not exist until he discovered it for some over-designed travel magazine. You will laugh, you will cringe, in the words of Steve, you will never be the same again. In this episode, I am joined by Vincent Wong, member of Lao San, a collective of grassroots activists and writers from Hong Kong who are sharing the colonial left perspectives. Our conversation started out as an elaboration of Hong Kong's unique political spectrum and as it often does in this podcast, branched out into unexpected directions. Hello, today I am with uh, Vincent Wong, and like he is a uh, he's among the editorial crew. I'm say, I'm guessing uh, among the Laosan, uh, more of the broader membership. Okay, uh, okay, Laosan, uh, among yeah. the broader membership of the um, uh, the website Laosan, which I guess I will let you talk about it before I sure. do the introductions here. Sure, thank you, uh, Efe. Um, yeah, so I, as as you mentioned, I'm a member of Laosan. Uh, Laosan is a collective. It's a it's a group of uh, decolonial leftist writers, uh, translators, artists, and organizers uh, from Hong Kong and the broader uh, Hong Kong as well as Chinese uh, diaspora. Uh, we're a you know we're a pretty motley crew, I would say. Uh, you know, lots of different types of people and personalities. Uh, lots of different things that. Uh, they're you know they're skilled at and people are coming from kind of different places we try to publish as much as possible of course you know in english but as well as in chinese um and and we have some translations into other languages for you know kind of country specific analysis that might be relevant let's say to indonesia or um of or korea so uh yeah, so so that's kind of the the Laosan collective and and sort of decolonial leftist sounds. Uh, I feel it has a particular kind of ring in the Chinese space because uh, in the Chinese, I guess, ambit, uh, a lot of times left and right in the I don't know, like the Western sort of sense uh, is a little bit flipped on its head sometimes. Uh, so, so people might not know exactly what you're talking about because, of course, the the Chinese uh, Communist Party is is the biggest power axis there. They're nominally communist, uh, but they're you know de facto um, kind of right wing authoritarian capitalist state. So, um, lot, lots of times left and right is you know kind of gets confused. So people would rather talk talk to you about the specifics of, you know, kind of your politics and, and your views on policies. And, um, but, but at the same time, you know, I think Laosan kind of tries to act as a bridge between uh, anti-colonial struggles elsewhere and using Hong Kong as a starting point for analysis. And then same with, uh, you know, kind of more leftist politics, particularly in terms of economic justice and class struggle. Uh, we, we want to keep that um, focused and say, you know, we're, we're, we're occupying this space. But other than that, Laosan is, you know, it's a very varied group. It's very diverse. People have very different kind of opinions, even political opinions. So, and, and we like to, we like to hold that kind of, uh, uh, diversity and space within within the collective. So that's a little bit about a uh, little bit about Laosan. Yeah. I mean, what I found impressive ever since Laosan had launched the kind of commitment to intersectionality is not just lip service. It's it's very genuine from its kind of like criticism of 
both China's foreign policy and China's internal policy as well. Uh, the Chinese its criticism of Chinese Communist Party, uh, but also its the, the capacity to kind of be critical about nationalist movements within places like Hong Kong and Taiwan, and it's their own kind of chauvinistic attitudes toward like mainland Chinese immigrants in places in, in Hong Kong specifically. And that was a kind of level of discourse that was a level of like exposing the complication of the narrative, which was desperately needed, I think, for that mm -hmm. part of the world. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate that. And, and you know, I think uh, trying to be true to those uh, intersectional critiques, and I mean that in a pretty robust way, right? Uh, because intersectionality is usually talked about in terms of race and gender, uh, as they should be. Uh, but, you know, like, uh, I think broadly, the idea of how different oppressions um, are related and actually intertwine with one another uh, it, 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 in, you know, it's, you know, an idea of an emancipatory politics has to, has to deal with it, right? So um, uh, uh, I, I think when, whenever you try to do that, and especially as a space as hot as, as Hong Kong is in geopolitics, you get kind of attacks from everywhere. And sometimes the attacks are, you know, a little bit surprising, like you, mm -hmm. you, you think. Uh, so, you know, of course, you know, we get critiques from, you know, the Chinese kind of uh, nationalists, we get critiques from uh, US campists, you could say, or even US liberals, right? Uh, but we also get um, uh, a lot of critiques from, from Hong Kong itself, right? Uh, both within the movement uh, in Hong Kong, as well as uh, the, the diaspora um, that is, uh, you know, feels it's, it's self super attached to that, to that movement. So it's, it's an interesting um, space to occupy. Uh, and, and it's, and then it has its own challenges uh, because of that. But we're really glad that, you know, um, folks, you know, I think we'll, we'll go into it a little bit later, but, you know, different parts of the periphery, you know, you could say, in, in different parts of the world are actually um, quite, the, the response has actually been really, really positive. Uh, and, and they see, I think, a potential for something there um, that is, is uh, not really there with a lot of the traditional kind of media coverage of, of this sort of geopolitics stuff. I think one of the things that is interesting to talk about that, like, I don't want to get too much into like criticizing the left or whatever, because that's like, we do this all the time and it's kind of, we've almost kind of like memorized like the reasons yeah, the why, yeah. are, exactly why we are angry yeah. with it. But for me and for a lot of people that like I had the kind of privilege and the opportunity to like connect through uh, my own media work and my own writing, like a lot of people who are kind of interested in kind of like peripheral connections and kind of this kind of decolonial politics, we have a background that's very much rooted in the left. And I think it's almost universal for people who are interested in this kind of like, I'm not going to specify what this kind of uh, activism is, maybe like peripheral activism, but we almost kind of universally understand each other's disappointment with that. But mm -hmm. I'm kind of also interested in kind of, I suppose, propagating the idea that like we don't need to salvage the the idea of the left anymore. Mm -hmm. That you know, like we can create something else that is more meaningful and that is more kind of like interacts better with our context. But from also what you just described earlier, the way you've put it, like Laosan's interaction with the left. Uh, what you said was like we are in this space uh, I kind of like that idea appeals to me a lot more than trying to salvage it because yeah it's it's more about anti-capitalism than about like trying to place yourself within this constellation like ideological constellation which takes the world of Karl Marx as if it was some kind of a gospel about like how the world should be interpreted yeah, yeah, I mean, absolutely, and 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 I, I think you know, uh, I don't know. So so we're, we're struggling with kind of a little bit with terms a little bit, which is mm. fine actually. I think that's normal. Uh, but you know, I think what you're getting at it with the left, 
and you know uh, I think I think there was an episode with uh, Joey Ayub um, uh, and and Manga where you know we should stop saying this is the so-called left. This mm. is the left, you know, and and agree, of course not everybody in the left agrees with you know this particular, but this is like a reoccurring, consistent core issue, right? And um, yeah, I mean, I think I think it totally kind of makes sense to be you know, more specific with what, what we're saying here. Um, and if global capitalism is, you know, hegemonic, which it is, of mm-hmm. course, in, in this day and age, even like, you know, phenomenally socialist states are now, you know, part of global capitalist relations, then, then we, yeah, we, we have to kind of cut out, uh, uh, you know, you, as, as you said, you know, we, we can't have, a. a a complete sort of ideological dogmatism to these ideas of the past that were situated in a very particular historical and and economic. You know, of course, I'm talking. I'm thinking about Marx, but you could talk about a lot of you know great kind of left leftist thinkers. Not to say that there isn't something to draw from that, but you'll see all these people that said you know like Marx would have said this, and mm-hmm. you know Engels would have said no, they wouldn't. You don't know. That's what you say. It's tough trying to launder yourself, you know, behind, you know, these kind of dead uh, uh, European, you know, thinkers, you know, even though they, they had some very good insights, right? Um, you know, we, we don't need to tie our politics to that. And I think that can be a liberating thing. So I, I you know, I totally agree with, with that insight. And I think also it's important to be able to kind of like, because what you said also about how the idea of left and right is kind of almost inverse when it comes to uh, the specific context of China. And I think it's important to, while insisting on not being dogmatic about leftism, it's also important to be not dogmatic about exclusion of leftism mm-hmm. as well, I think, because like you are in a in a in a very specific context in which the kind of the leftism that the um, Chinese Communist Party claims to embody also involves uh, free market capitalism in its possibly its most vicious form. So at that point, it becomes it, it becomes important again in a different sense to be able to kind of entangle or like disentangle what the left means from a strictly economic perspective because. Uh, in my part of the world, the left is not strictly seen as an economic thing. It's also seen as just kind of like being progressive in general. Uh, but within your context, the kind of like strictly economic aspect of it be- gets like a added weight, I'm supposing. Yeah, yeah. So so let, let me, so this is fascinating. Like, let me share like maybe a story with you is, um, so in Hong Kong's protest movement, uh, you know, which really kind of peaked in 2019 and, I'd say early 2020, uh, there is a really, really um, core sort of forum um, called uh, LIHKG. So you can think of it as sort of a, a secondary, you get university students read it in Hong Kong. So you could kind of uh, post stuff up, you know, people can thumbs up, thumbs down, and interesting things will, you know, kind of go to the top and stuff. And this was really a big core for a lot of organizing, as well as a lot of the political debates, debates that are intra-movement, right? So what ought to we, we do? What should be our demands? You know, what is, you know, information sharing, all the whole thing. And um, there was this one uh, thing where I think they were using some sort of Western kind of political compass. You know, you've, you've kind of seen this uh, X, Y four grids, yeah, thing, yeah. right? social leftism versus you know social rightists and economic and you know and then uh people thought they were um on the complete opposite side of the grid that the the compass spat out right so they thought that they were very right because they cared about you know economic justice because they cared about uh, you know, greater division, you know, more affordable housing because they cared about um, uh, civil liberties, especially with respect to the protection from police uh, uh, powers and surveillance. 
and and you know and then this kind of western political compass spat out like the opposite and they were like i don't understand what's going on uh so i think that was like a really visceral example of the ways that we you know even if we speak in english and there's this this discussion sometimes especially with the frames that we're used to in, in in the context of China and its peripheries, like things can get really mixed up really, really fast. Can you kind of like describe a bit more in what sense like they turned out to be the opposite of what they thought they were? Yeah, yes, because because there's a okay, so let me uh, dive a little more into the Hong Kong context because I think that's not necessarily true of, of all contexts, right? Um, so Hong Kong is one of like the most unequal places like in the world, right? Um, in terms of a city, then, you know, uh, it's Gini coefficient is, uh, you know, right at the right at the top. I think last time I checked, it was the most expensive real estate per square foot or mm. per square meter in the world. Um, so just massive inequality, sort of massive uh, uh, issues with, you know, homelessness and uh, the minimum wage is like a little bit over four dollars an hour right us in a place where is the most expensive place to live in the world right so um and and, and the governing powers there are actually controlled by a combination of essentially you know profit uh, developers bankers large finance companies and uh pro-beijing political forces right so it's like this sort of combination that controls both the Hong Kong government as well as the the, the legislature, right? Um, and even though you know you can't really uh, elect half of the legislature, these are 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 actually appointed by primarily corporate interests. So so when people think about left, uh, they think about what we call like red capital, right? So the Beijing forces who are collaborating with the banks. The property development tycoons, uh, the, the industry, you know, the transportation ty tycoons, um, they think about unfettered free market capitalism that is backed by a brutally well-funded, um, repressive police state apparatus, right? So they they think that's left because that's what's been imposed by them, by the the, the leaders of their. Uh, uh, governments, right? So, it has, so, so you can see where, where, where that goes, right? With the, with yes, the, the whack I mean, kind of political uh, uh, conference results. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, like, it is because, like, the reason that I asked to, to, to elaborate on that is because I was wondering if there's any kind of contact with the quote-unquote original core idea. But from your answer, like, I get there, there is absolutely none. It's just, like, it's entirely bred within the context that they're experiencing, like that the idea of like what the left is. And yeah, I kind of actually find that to be. Yeah, like... yeah, yeah. And, and that's not necessarily ubiquitous, right? Like the, I think I think of people course. are so frustrated by that. They a lot of people just simply abandon left or, or uh, left and right. Or they say that um, there's this kind of critique of the left, which is like a left plastic, which kind of means um, a derogatory term for these kind of liberal high-minded um, folks who are non-violent and uh, don't really understand how power works in, hmm. in society. So there, there's also that, but it's, as you said, uh, it's extremely context specific and it just doesn't read well. It doesn't translate well um, at all to that situation. I, what is exciting about it is that like, it's, it's potential to, like I'm, I'm always kind of like really excited about modeling definitions that we thought were kind of like fixed in stone like because in real lived experience especially the one in the periphery where like we don't have access necessarily to the source material of like ideologies we kind of make do with whatever kind of ideological tools we have at hand to be able to kind of use them for our own specific context but within kind of like social sciences or like history writing like our own interpretations of these ideas are often kind of disregarded or like when mm. they're acknowledged when their existence is acknowledged they're just kind of ridiculed for like misunderstanding the original point right of the argument that was made whereas whatever fits our struggle 
is the most important thing, not the correct interpretation of whichever ideology we we are borrowing from. Right, right, right. And I think that goes to, you know, I think the idea that that you all put out about, hey, you know, we have great respect for the people that are living oppression and grab on to the closest idea that makes sense, right? And try to, you know, beat their oppressors with it, with, you know, like over the head with a club or whatever, right? <laughs> and 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 that makes, you know, you 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 gotta respect that, you know, like even if it doesn't fit within. Uh, and 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 even if there are um, you know, unintended consequences with that, that might actually be, you know, regressive, right? I think um that's that's important to to think about, to call out, but then also to understand, you know, where folks are coming from and why they might, you know, feel that way, why they might want to grasp onto that so hard. Uh, uh, is, is a really a good good way to think about it. It's something to learn from, essentially, yeah. as opposed yeah. to looking at the way that they have grabbed onto something and just call them out for all the wrong reasons, like, uh, oh, but that's not what Lenin had said in 1924. <laughs> right. you know, that's the yeah. totally like, wrong reason. I don't give a fuck about what Lenin said in 1924. None I care about you know, putting food on the table and not getting beat by the police like right now. Right? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, so in terms of like the specificities of, uh, the struggle that you're involved in now in Hong Kong, uh, I've read some of the articles that you've written and when it comes to kind of like, uh, our own kind of peripheral struggles seeding into an ideological kind of core that then we can kind of disperse among each other and kind of feed from, uh, one the, the one article that I that 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 I found really exciting was your article about abolitionism and how Hong Kong had carried its own experiment in abolitionism and how like everybody else uh, could kind of like use the experience there to build their own models in their own context. Maybe you would like to talk about that a little bit. Uh, yeah, sure. Um... So, so I mean, I, I get, I get, it goes to the theme, I think, of uh, the organic evolution of each uh, mass struggle, I guess, or, or mass movement, and, and how they're always going to be uh, context-specific, but not just context-specific, more uh, driven by, like, the actual, you know, whether it's the really acute, horrible oppression that's going on, or the really acute uh, lack of, you know, basic life necessities, right? That's going on. So that's, that's always going to be, I think, true. And so what I was trying to do with this, uh, you know, the piece that you're, you're the piece that you're talking about, I wrote along with, um, uh, Edward Wong is, uh, you know, how to abolish the Hong Kong police. And we're actually, you know, uh, it was actually a sixth demand that came out as a kind of core, uh, organic demand of of a lot of the population, especially about you know two three months into the start of the protests, where you know the the, the police repression is really really ramping up at this point, and uh, so so you know like people started calling out you know like uh, you know guys on you know like uh, this you know disband the police, and uh, and it was remarkable right because it would you know you would have all sorts of people from all sorts of, you know, really class positions, to be perfectly honest, chanting this in the streets or chanting this in the malls. And, um, and, 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 and of course, it doesn't have the same kind of length of prison and police abolitionist politics, let's say that, um, uh, you know, happened in, in America, or even to a certain extent, uh, in the Arab Spring, right, there was quite a bit of that sort of um, political thought that animated some of the some of the actions of the, the, the protesters there, right? So it, it really emerged organically before people even had a chance to really think about it, right? It came out of a, a real sort of, you know, fuck the police sort of feeling, but without a lot of the thinking of, of, okay, well, what happens after that? Or what does that actually mean, right? So from this um, 
article, I would say, has two audiences then, right? One is with the people on the ground that are, you know, chanting this thing or are hearing it chanted and say, okay, well, what does that actually mean, right? Um, what are the actual options here? And two, then, for uh, to put it in conversation with people that have been thinking, communities that have been thinking about that for a very, very long time, right? And, you know, a, a lot of the literature, not surprisingly, comes out of, you know, Black liberation activists, uh, prison organizers, that sort of thing, right? So uh, we kind of put that in conversation together to say, okay, well, what are these different ideas of what disband the police might mean, right? And there are some, you know, people that are thinking more in terms of, uh, well, that's like a stronger version of reform, right? You kick out everybody, you have a chance, or, or, or at least the top people, you have a chance to really then change the culture of the police. And we can look at different examples like uh, the Irish example, where they reconstituted in a way that was much more kind of a... Uh, um, had much more, let's say, robust civilian protections. I don't know exactly how robust, but certainly at least on paper, uh, it was there, right? And uh, and then of course, there's the much more radical politics, you know, that's exemplified by the Andrew, Angela Davises and so forth, um, which is actually a full on critique of what the police is as an institution. Uh, so that it's always going to be uh, at the end of the day, an institutional and political force that is on the side of the state and capital and has very, you know, very little to do with actual public safety. So in the way for us to think about uh, abolishing the police is actually to rethink public safety and to rethink what uh, democracy actually looks like. And uh, in doing it without the, the police prosecutorial complex, which we've been socialized to believe is the only way in which we can achieve justice when there are harms, the variety of harms that happen in society, right? Um, so so we, we, you know, we did a little bit of that connecting um, those literatures together with what was happening in Hong Kong and also saying that, hey, if we apply this a, li a little bit of this framework to Hong Kong, we actually see that there are seeds, there are prefigurative seeds of abolition that are already happening. That is the idea of um, providing for each other, including, um, including public safety and justice mechanisms completely outside of the state, right? And, and you know, uh, we, we mark a couple of examples from that uh, in, in a way in which, you know, you can go uh, that, that kind of, you, you don't have to wait for the, the, the police to be actually abolished by fiat or something, right? You kind of make that a reality through practice for the people, especially that as a matter of reality are not gonna get protection from the police anyway, right? So undocumented migrants, sex workers, racialized peoples um, to learn from their actually long years of survival and practice uh, to think about well, what it means now that the rest of us are under uh, police oppression. Um, so, so that was that was kind of how that article uh, came together. And I think, you know, more, I'm, I, don't, I don't know if this is true, but like I hope that kind of beyond Hong Kong, this specific example, sorry, my dog is kind of going, uh, uh, that, you know, there, there might be some interesting insights uh, that could be applied when the idea of abolition travels, right? I think, uh... It ties into our discussion earlier about like political theory and practice, kind of like weighing them on scales, uh, because here again, we have like an example, like I find that a lot of contemporary political theory has kind of evolved in a way that like when you say something like, let's abolish the police, some, uh, you know, those memes with kind of like this cool kid with the sunglasses, like crossing his arms, you know, like, like, he acts like he knows everything. There's always some person like that who's going to come up and be like, so who's going to take care of X, Y, or Z? Like, you were always kind of expected to come up with a kind of blueprint of what that society is going to look like. And you like that's supposed to come up from like a seed in your brain, and you're going, you you just kind of like project it onto like a map, 
and then then you try to apply that into your into your everyday life or into this kind of like tremendous revolutionary moment that like overnight everything is going to change according to the plan that was made from like a, a fantastic genius genius mind whereas what's a lot more interesting is to actually look into the existing practices um, that people already employ in their communities already and to try to kind of learn a lesson from that and maybe to expand the zone of these strategies and revise them and kind of adapt them into like different different circumstances and situations and maybe start to change your mentality about what this society could look like yeah i, I mean one of the most fascinating you know to to just jump off of your your thoughts on how it's so interesting to to see you know and sometimes you just need to ask right uh, what different communities that have been, you know, historically and continue to be um, uh, really, you know, kind of surveilled and uh, uh, targeted by the police is the sex worker community um, in Hong Kong, right? And how there's this entire idea where, okay, you know, we, we, we're never going to get a fair shake with the police. Uh, we're, we're criminalized. And it's always going to be more, you know, almost always going to be more dangerous for us to call police, no matter what happens, if we're robbed, we're attacked, we're sexually abused, you know, whatever, right? And so, um, you know, I think I covered a little bit, but there's this ecosystem that has organically developed within the community of, okay, this is what's going to happen, we got to take care of each other. So, but what does that mean? How can we do that? Uh, there's like, you know, kind of a, the telephone network to report violence that is inter-community, uh, setting up self-defense classes, you know, training allies, people that have, um, you know, are within the community and are supportive to uh, share an information network, uh, uh, you know, to, 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 you know, do their own sort of kind of investigations um, and then collectively advocate kind of for security, right? Especially mm -hmm. if there are recurring aggressors, um, uh, that, you know, we can kind of, you know, individually sex workers, you know, it's very, very difficult for them to, 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 to know and to spot and to even when spotting to necessarily reject, especially if they're coming into the work of business, uh, place of business. But if there's a collective response, then that becomes so much more, uh, uh, so much more powerful. And it's just those little kind of localized uh, community wide practices that are actually the the exciting part right because you could actually do it mm. you know you don't have to read 500 pages of angela davis to mm. you know to get started with sort of uh, this stuff right where there's a need um it could be you know the idea could be activated so that that i think you know in the in the research for us to do even this article uh that those sorts of things were really really exciting I think also, for example, with the examples that you gave, like all of them sound like really just common sense, like on paper. But when it comes to their application, like somebody actually needs to put the work to, for example, do something like uh, have an oral archive of known abusers so that they would not be allowed into certain spaces. Like somebody actually put has to put in the daily labor of reminding everyone of like who this person is. And it kind of takes it kind of takes a community who knows each other and who cares about each other to be able to accomplish with that. You can't do this with a TED talk or with like a fancy phone application or like trying to Uberize this kind of a thing. Like people need to actually kind of care about each other to be able to do that. And it actually reminds me of, uh, of white American anthropologist that who's working in Hong Kong, whose name is not necessary right now. And he, like, I've, I was kind of either saw this talk or I, was, I heard about it. He kind of had this. He was studying African immigrants in Hong Kong, and uh, he kind of talks about how they send money back home through uh, through friends who are kind of like visiting. They they would give them money, so they would take it back home, and then they they would come back and whatever they were like bringing from their home countries. And this to him was kind of like marvelous. Oh, look, like they're kind of completely 
bypassing the banking system and they don't like this way they don't have to pay commission to the bank isn't this absolutely wonderful and to the rest of us it's like it's just really stupid to do it through the bank so why don't you just give it to someone who's going back home anyway it's just like plain common sense but to a lot of like outside observers who are kind of like looking at the world from i hate to say this but kind of like a westernized and white perspective they're just kind of like fascinated by the fact that people don't need these institutions that they have created for themselves but we have like totally common sense way of doing stuff which kind of is based not on the magnificence of the idea but on the fact that people care for each other and trust each other something as basic as that and i think that kind of a thing is perhaps the foundations the seedlings of starting to think about um like an abolitionist society like a society where police is dissolved yeah and yeah i mean it, it might be as you said then excavating some of the practices that people already do as a matter of common sense in their daily lives because of the struggle right like i mean if these people could push on a phone uh you know to to get money and it wasn't going to be like some sort of extortionary rate uh you know to send money back to uh you know their family members and friends they probably would but they mm. probably can't so you know this just makes yeah uh, uh way way more sense and a lot of it is just as you said like um it looks common sense from the perspective of the people that are doing it but i think you know, when there are, especially, you know, academics or, you know, whatever, uh, from, from a more elite background, uh, you know, you, you stumble across this and it's like the doctrine of discovery, right? Like, oh, you mm. know, this is so incredible. Like, let me tell you about, I'm going to write my PhD thesis on this or whatever. Exactly. Um, and it kind of actually reminds me, I was just thinking about this again today. I think about this a lot, like the way people use the word comrade in kind of like activist circles, it always kind of gives me goosebumps. It always makes me feel like people who are trying to organize politically in a certain space, they just want to kind of avoid uh, the emotional investment of calling each other friends. So they've created this word out of plastic so that they won't have to do it like the only relationship we have between each other is purely political and like I don't want to see you after this thing is done that that also reminds me of this like purely theoretical approach to um, to life and politics. Well, so, so, you know, I mean, I wonder if we can take this, you know, little tangent a little bit uh, even further of. I think we're getting at something here, which is these kind of you know, I don't know if it's socialist or, you know, kind of progressive politics that uh, we, you know, find ourselves attracted to cannot actually be done without a very deep level of investment in building relationships, in building, uh, you know, strong community networks. And that just, it just takes a long time and it takes a lot of work. Uh, but at the same time, you know, even as people rail against neoliberalism and the whole deal, people are still living their lives in these very kind of individualistic ways. And you can you see this on social media, right? Uh, that people are living a lot of their lives, even their social relations uh, through social media, but it has, especially on Twitter, like very, very kind of perverse, very individualistic sort of, um, of incentives. And, uh, and I, and I feel like I thought about that because uh, from, from your remark about, you know, the, the goosebumps that you get when you hear somebody throw a comrade, but it's like, I don't even know you. <laughs> you yes. Know what, I mean? what does that even mean? It's not like we've been in, you know, in picket lines together. Or we've been, you, you know, in the trenches or whatever, right? It's not based off that same idea. Yes, it's purely based, especially on a place like social media. It's purely based on the fact that we agree that, the uh, Uyghur genocide did not happen. That's why we call each other comrades, basically, on Twitter. Um, I want to get back to kind of um, the political balancing that you and Laosan have found themselves involved in, because a lot of, like, when we're kind of, like, ridiculing this kind of leftist thing, 
it's also important to kind of i guess express who like we are not as people who criticize the left and one of the things that i found uh really important like in these in a lot of these conversations like you know we're both familiar like there is a kind of undercurrent within the kind of radical left who insists that uh criticism of the uh, chinese communist party reflects as kind of like xenophobia like across the world and that's why there's like increased amounts of violence against like asian americans for example especially after the uh, shooting of the beauty parlor um but for like a platform like laosan like that's not the core of the racism that asians are experiencing in the western world and you had like an article about um chinese students who were living um in the states who were kind of like found themselves between a rock and a hard place when it comes to trying to like develop their own critical ideas of both their lives in the West and the Chinese Communist Party. Like they're being kind of squeezed out by both narratives. Maybe we can talk about that a little bit. Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks for for that. And I think this is like a, a really big core of, uh, you know, the the tensions that are like, again, not even go, not not even just going on in, in the left, right? They're going on everywhere uh, in the political sort of sort of spectrum or space. Uh, the idea that uh you know anti-chinese racism is uh a direct corollary of um a villainization of the chinese nation state mm. and and a broader you know like this is a if you step back from that that argument is again a, a broader idea about whether an ethno-nationalist state can actually or ought actually to represent like a people whatever that is right so i mean i think the ones that a lot of people might be familiar with is like Israel and, and, and you know, do they actually represent the voice of the Jewish, the global kind of Jewish community? And I think if you put it in that way, of course, they'll say no. But but at the same time, um, you know, they, they you know, th that one kind of trope is so powerful and it's just redeployed over and over and over and over again, right? Okay, any sort of critique of Israel, any sort of ability to hold their account to the dispossession of Palestinian people uh, is, is anti-Semitic. And, and, you know, similarly, like, uh, because it's so powerful, this idea of the nation state, uh, of a people, one people under one territory, uh, but even beyond that, um, that this is the, this is the mothership, right? Uh, everything has you do as you know i'm a chinese person uh I, I like i view myself as a chinese person but if you're within that orbit and you lean into that identity then you're part of us mm. and uh and then we can actually say you know what you think and so this this kind of campus of of not of, of directly conflating people and a state is what I think Laosan is generally trying to critique, whether it's on the left or the right or the center, right? I mean, it's just a bogus idea. And it's not just a bogus idea, but it's actually it's extremely harmful idea, mm. right? Uh, from And it plays into nationalists' uh, playbooks on either side of the, uh, the struggle, right? So it's great for Chinese nationalists because then they can say, Yes, I told you, uh, the dictates of Beijing actually reflect the people uh, of Chinese people all over the world. And if you're not down with it, then you're a race traitor, mm. you know, something like that. And, and uh, alternatively, the, you know, uh, other, you know, let's say right wing forces in the West, but even liberal uh, folks as well will say, you know, OK, uh, uh, th this is because that you know chinese people have like a tendency towards authoritarianism or you know confucianism makes them more likely to accept patriarchal norms which you know translate only i had a penny every time i heard somebody Some say wild that shit, you know oh my every every time you hear confucianism as some sort of explanatory thing for anything in the orient you should just take a shot because yeah. like this it's <laughs> it's going to go to a certain place 
So, so let me let me bring it back to the idea of then of the spike of anti-Asian racism uh, that has corresponded and I do believe been exacerbated by uh, the vilification or the, the the increasing rivalry between um, the West and and China, right? Is uh, the mechanism in which that works is through the con conflation of a people with a state that won't work mm. without that, right? So the, the more that you buy into this idea and you don't fight it, uh, the more you are supporting the preconditions for increased anti-Asian racism, but also the conditions of possibility for a very strong Chinese uh, ultranationalism, right? And I, I think, think it's not that, that's not just in China, that can be applied in, you know, kind of other places as well. Absolutely. And we talk about uh, sorry, sorry uh, go, go ahead and then. No, 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 do finish. Well, one more thing I wanted to say is that racism is not just hinged on white supremacy, mm. right? This is a tough, I think this is a tough thing for people in the West to swallow, but uh, social difference can be calcified to justify like horrible oppression and inequality in a lot of different ways. Sometimes that calcifies into something that looks like or might as well be race adjacent. So what's happening in, with the Uyghurs and other uh, non-Han indigenous people in, in China's Northwest, in, in Xinjiang or East Turkestan, if you will, um, that looks, smells just like, you know, any other sort of settler colonial project. Uh, uh, and that that is like a Frankenstein that takes logics from many other kind of racialized subordination discourses, right? The war on terror, Muslim people as uh, uh, you know, kind of these terrorist adjacent bodies uh, that need to be controlled. Uh, that you know, people that need to that their women kind of need to be uh, subject to to forced kind of birth control because you know, you're creating too many of these proto terrorists, right? Uh, mass incarceration, um, the actual dispossession of indigenous people from their lands and from their culture, right? In, in a forced assimilation to the majority um, uh, Han Chinese culture, which is deemed to be more civilized, more developed, et cetera, right? Mm. So if you are not down for racism in the West, uh, if you are not down for colonialism in the West, then it should be a slam dunk, I think, what your position should be uh, with respect to what the Chinese government is doing uh, with its 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 Uyghur and other Turkic Muslim populations, because it it's it's you know eighty percent the same thing, hmm. uh, and and that's something that again I think an internationalist perspective as as opposed to this campus perspective will be able to see through kind of very quickly. Hmm. Absolutely, and um, yeah, I mean I'm going to kind of suppress the urge of talking about Yanis Varoufakis and like how he kind of like went on about like uh, oh it was just some minor skirmishes with Vietnam or whatever like, I, I I don't want that stuff to. It's so about. hard to not be dragged into the cesspool that is. I know, you know. I know. I just want to acknowledge <laughs> that this thing has happened so that we can just kind of like move on, but also like. You said, for example, that it kind of like sets the precondition pre of racism. I think beyond setting the precondition of racism, it's pretty much like the idea, especially when it comes to anti-Chinese, anti-Asian racism, like one of the core ideas, like, okay, every racism is kind of similar in a sense, but like every kind of racism has their own specific tropes as well that are kind of like inbuilt. Um, just the, the way that a lot of kind of uh, Jewish people I've heard are kind of denouncing the idea that Israel is, is representative of Jewish communities like everywhere or like even of like all Jewish people in Israel that, that they find this idea to be anti-Semitic in itself. Uh, when it comes to anti-Chinese racism, this idea is actually one of the core tropes of anti-Asian and anti-Chinese racism, that they are like absolutely incapable of being individuals, that they kind of like behave as like a mass entity, as like some kind of a hive, and therefore their state is entirely representative of people who are living both there and abroad. So I find that it's not just like setting a precondition, that's what I was trying to say for, for that racism, but it is actually 
100% within the definition of anti-Chinese racism to be assuming that they they behave as a single entity. Yeah, yeah, thanks for, for pointing that out. I think you're exactly right. There are always going to be these key tropes that do a lot of the heavy lifting in terms mm. of a specific type of racist discourse. And uh, I think the that idea of Chinese people just being like, a, you know, essentially like, I don't know, you watch Star Trek, like the Borg, uh, uh, and, and these, you know, these ants that are part of, uh, you know, this broader collective and because of that, they culturally and inherently have these kind of different ideas as, uh, you know, like Western liberalism or, or that idea It's just, it's just ridiculous. Right. Um, and if you think about, uh, you know, this is a, the, the, the Chinese government records mass actions, uh, this is another way of saying you know, protests, right? They, mm -hmm. they could be actually big, actually they could be, you know, quite small, but, you know, there's around, you know, 200,000 mass actions that happen in China every year, mm. but you'll never hear about them mm. or you never hear the specifics about them on these little ones that leak out here and there. But th there is like uh, a bunch of organizing and resistance that always happens on a, as you can imagine, because there's like 1.4 billion people there or whatever, right? So it's like double this, the population of Europe. Um, and so, and so, uh, like the 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 state, the Chinese state, as well as uh, you could say racists or people that you know are are very cozy with these kind of racist tropes, uh, they invest a lot actually into uh, FA the 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 specific trope that you're talking about that uh, you know Chinese people are by and large a collective sort of group that, you know, uh, move together as, as a hive. Mm. And even some of the stuff around the, the historical arguments that are made around, let's say, the century of humiliation, you might, you might hear this quite frequently of, you know, the Chinese people, their feelings are hurt mm. by this, you know, whatever. And that's why we're going to, we're going to ban Nike, or that's why we're going to ban this Korean pop star that said the wrong thing. Uh, 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 that the, the, this, there's this collective sort of humiliation that is then used, that, that idea is then used to subjugate a dissident voice or, you know, do some sort of kind of nationalist adjacent policy. Hmm. It's pretty much exactly, <laughs> this is why like, I find it so fascinating to have these kinds of like, I guess what we could call like peripheral connections, because it's exactly what we're going through over here like um and th that's also one of the disheartening things as well because like when i picture like when i when i am communicating with other turkish people about the kind of like crimes against humanity that we have committed over here um like historically starting from the armenian genocide to like contemporary kind of um discrimination against Kurdish people and their kind of like systematic kind of killing of Kurdish people as well. Like it is not very common to find Turkish people who will kind of like acknowledge these. And like on the one hand, I want to stand against the racist idea that like we are somehow incapable because of our like cultural conditioning of kind of facing these issues or like tackling these issues on the other hand i also like like we as a community of like peripheral activists i suppose we bear the responsibility of like mm, carrying the burdens of of the cruelty that was committed in our name so it's it's a slippery slope it's a, it's a tricky place to be in uh to be able to combat that and i don't know where to start i don't know I don't know what advice I could give to people about like how we could start doing this for ourselves. Well, one thing that, that, you know, this is not exactly a, 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 a recommendation or anything, but it was just a thought that came to mind as you said that is, you know, I think, I think it's pretty fair to say that if you are generally right, if you are raised in a certain kind of national nation state condition, uh, you're going to be typically fed a very rosy picture, right, about, you know, how this kind of nation state came to be and what it sort of represents. And then therefore, there will be these 
um, these blind spots that you'll naturally have, unless you happen to be like, you know, of, of certain kind of critical groups or in, in certain, you know, uh, oppressed groups, but you're, you're, you know, a hundred percent, like you may not know exactly what lies there, but you know, a hundred percent, there are massive blind spots because of the way that you've been taught. And I think that's true for every nation. And then, so, so then the question that I often think about is, okay, if you are, let's say, uh, I don't know, a Canadian national, right? Do you have then a specific obligation to understand what those blind spots are? What is like the constitutive foundational oppressions or violences on which your nation um, is built on and, and kind of continues to be built on? Um, and I and I think that there might there might be something to that, but you know even if that occurs and you learn about that, then how do you connect that to other other places, right? Other other peripheries. I'm I'm not really a hundred percent sure, but I do when when I when I talk to let's say um, you know kind of kind of my my Chinese friends who uh, you know maybe grew up in in, in mainland China and, and through the, the educational system, uh, when I when I say something like that, I feel like that resonates pretty hard, right? It's like, I know what I've been taught and I know that it's not enough. Mm. And I know there's, there's all these blind spots, but I don't know what those blind spots are necessarily. And, and when I try to learn about it, I get it from these whack sources that I, I'm not sure whether or not I can believe them because a lot of them are quoting like the U.S. State Department or whatever, mm. right? So that uh, uh, I, I I don't know if that's a similar thing that's uh, you, you know you find when you talk to uh, other Turkish people. Oh, the blind spots are definitely there, and the kind the kind of I suppose one of the fortunate things about here compared to China is that we have a lot more kind of credible international historians who are kind of like studying and like a lot of after the revolution also a lot of the Ottoman archives have opened and like there's been a lot of kind of uh, international conversations that are going on about like at least what the Ottoman Empire has done so we do like th there is nowhere to hide from that if you want to kind of like exist in the credible world uh but yeah, I mean, a lot of the times it's also difficult to kind of convince people that there are blind spots in in the kind of history that they have been taught. And a lot of it is not so much because the because they're attracted to like a rosy picture of 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 a narrative, but a lot of it partially is also like half of it is that, and the other half is. Perhaps it's the age that we're living in right now as well, is that people have this attachment to victimhood that like they believe that victimhood, like that's what you were saying, I believe about the century of humiliation. And they they grab on to this idea of victimhood as something that's going to like legitimize their demands from the world. And since you mentioned Canada as well, I think like the ultimately most ridiculous example of these, I think are the Quebecois who are like constantly obsessed about this idea that they have been like the greatest victims of like kind of colonial oppression. Um, but yeah, I just kind of squeezed that in there because I just find it hilarious. Yeah, well, have you, like, where did you learn a little bit about those sorts of politics? Because there was a very uh, commonly lambasted article uh, maybe a, a couple of months ago that came out that that made this exact argument and then you know we should replace like bipoc you know with francophones oh. and like you know other visible minorities or something crazy oh it's actually <laughs> on that far what yeah. the place that i've learned about this from was like some uh quebecois person had showed me a poem by a quebecois poet from like the 1960s called something like speak white and it's kind of like a poem that's raging against the idea of like uh, Quebecois being forced to speak English. And like the poet kind of equates um, Anglo-Saxons with whiteness 
And they kind of, I think the politics back then, they did not have this kind of, oh, political correctness has gone mad, SJW stuff. I think it's more in a spirit of like, we share the same uh, kind of spiritual struggle with African-Americans and Native Americans. Like they were trying to like grift themselves into that more than kind of trying to claim a separate victimhood from that, which it's, it's a, it's a well-written poem. It's quite seductive. But when I like take a step back from it, it just makes me laugh. That's really fascinating. And, and you know, one of the things is also that happens in Canada uh, in terms of its foundational construction was um, the whole impetus for expanding West, right? So, you know, Canada is the second largest country in the world mm. in terms of area. How it got maybe 60% of it was expanding Westward, claiming everything building a railroad and then, you know, kind of sending militaries to uh, uh, quell any sort of indigenous resistance that would mm. come. But they justified that on, hey, we're, we're on a defensive, we're in defensive mode because if we don't do this, then the Americans are going to take it, uh. right? So it's this inter-imperialist rivalry of which if you only look within that, we're the weaker power. Mm. And uh, this is therefore, you know, again, still you know, mobilizing the politics of victimhood to basically wipe out uh, indigenous nations and communities uh, along the way in their, you know, kind of westward imperialist expansion. Hmm. So, I mean, I, when you know, we talk about the politics of victimhood, there's so much, there's so much there to to unpack. Uh, uh, that. Yeah, I, I don't I wouldn't even really know where to start, but it's a really interesting. I think with with something like that, my own kind of intuition is to start from the personal. Uh, because it always has to do with. You have to be able to kind of acknowledge the, the, in the ways in which you personally have been a victim of stuff, but without kind of like starting to either exaggerate your victimhood or like there's always two ways because you either end up exaggerating your victimhood which is like the example that you gave about the uh, century of humiliation or you could go to the other extreme and kind of exaggerate your privilege and then you end up kind of self-flagellating and putting yourself like a lot a lot of like what like white radicals are doing by kind of placing america at the center of every narrative and kind of ignoring the experiences of everybody else i think if you just kind of focus on your personal thing, it, it might lead to something. But everything is just so ambiguous. I, well, I mean, I, and then, then it goes to the theme of, um, and, and it, 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 you know, I think people, I would love to know if, you know, people have found good writers on this, or like really good writers on this, but the whole idea of what is the role of pol emotion mm. in, in politics and in, in, in people of constructing um, their political positions. Because as you said, like it, it has to resonate at people at a, at a sort of deep level in order for it to, to work, right? To, for a nationalism to work or, uh, 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 you know, any really any other types of politics. But it, it also kind of goes to this individualization idea, right? So I mean, you keep individualizing it and I resonate with this politics because, you know, I have seen it or I've, you know, that then there's this other thing that happens is that, oh, okay, well, the problem is individualized. The solution therefore becomes individualized. And I think that's one of the reasons why you find the self-flagellating people. People think that that's a self-flagellation is the emancipatory politics. That's not exactly. the emancipatory no. politics, right? Absolutely. I don't, you know, I don't want you to see you know, like I acknowledge my white privilege and then that's why, you know, you know, Putin didn't, you know, <laughs> use chemical weapons and, you know, Assad didn't use chemical weapons in Syria, right? Like exactly. Somehow it leads to that. It's performative allyship. Sorry, I'm, I'm doing it again. I'm, I'm getting sucked into the black hole. It's um, kind of like, but I think we've been like really successful at kind of like hitting that tangent. Well, well we, we know when we're at the Event horizon. That's the name. <laughs> yes, of, yes, you know, yes. Out of the black hole, we, we we see it. Okay, and then let's go. And then we see. kind of walk oh, by. Yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, we have come to the end of uh, of an hour. It's been like a really fruitful conversation. Like we mostly managed to avoid getting into geopolitics. We 
psychoanalyzed um, politics and you even ended up talking about the Quebecois. It was kind of like, it was a, it was a really fun conversation. Oh, Is there anything you want to add? Closing remarks? Uh, no, maybe I'll, I'll just do a quick plug. Uh, if for, for folks who haven't, haven't checked it out, it's uh, laosan.hk. Uh, yeah, and, and you can follow us uh, on, on Twitter and Instagram as well. Um, and yeah, I'm just looking, really looking forward to, to more of these conversations that, uh, you know, we can, we can take a look at different contexts, um, not just to learn about the specific context, but also, you know, actually how different ideas can germinate from that, that are really, really fruitful, really, really productive. And we can think about in our our own lives so yeah you know just thank you for having me and thank you for absolutely thanks for thanks for joining us yeah